Church, this morning we continue once again with our series, Revealing Jesus, and today we begin with the last of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now you're probably thinking we're moving along fairly slowly at the moment. We're only approaching the end of chapter 3, and we've already been in the series for 13 weeks now. And you're probably thinking to yourself, Pastor, will we ever get through this series before Jesus returns? <laughs> Truthfully, I can't answer that because only the Father knows the answer. But what I can tell you, church, what I can remind you of is why it is so important to be studying this book of the Bible. Church, can you remember what it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed, it says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. This is a book of blessing, and you and I will be blessed if we read it, if we hear it, and we keep the things that are written in it. This book starts with a blessing in chapter 1 and ends with a blessing in chapter 22, and that should make us joyful as we read through and study this prophetic book. Some of you are thinking, you know, Pastor, I've read enough of Revelation to know there's, there's not a lot of joy in it. Yes, there's a lot of catastrophe. Yes, there's a lot of destruction. And yes, there's a lot of death. But joy, I'm not so sure. My answer to you and my question in return is, have you read it till the end? Wait until you get to Revelation 19 and 20 and Revelation 20 and 21 because here's what you'll find. We win. And we win because Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, Satan loses. Amen? That's enough to get happy about. That should make you joyful. The more you read and study this book, you'll discover God's plan for your future. And you'll discover not only does Satan lose, but he's the biggest loser in the book. Louis Talbot, who did a commentary on this book, said, and I quote, he said, the devil has turned thousands of people away from this portion of God's word because Satan doesn't want anyone to read a book that tells of his being cast out of heaven, nor is he anxious for us to read of the ultimate triumph of his number one enemy, Jesus Christ. The more you study the book of Revelation, the more you understand why Satan fights so hard to keep God's people away from it. End quote. Church, we will be blessed if we read it. That's me today. If we hear it, that's you. And we will all be blessed if we do what it says. Right? That's a good way. That's a really good way to approach this powerful portion of the Bible. On that note, please go with me to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And while you're turning in your Bibles, I want to recap briefly on our study of these churches thus far. If we could have a look at that first image together. Church, if you haven't seen this before, this is the timeline of the book of Revelation. And what we've been studying over the past couple of months is that small little section right at the beginning, which is called the church age. Now, the church age began after Jesus ascended back into heaven, and when the New Testament church was born, after receiving the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. As the church, we represent Christ in this world. We are His ambassadors, 
And we are now living in the church age, this time period between when Jesus ascended and when Jesus is coming again, right? specifically with reference to the rapture. So that's Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates a letter to seven different churches that are located in Asia Minor. If you have a look at the next image, this is the presumed route by which John's letters were circulated among the churches in Asia Minor, which is known today as Turkey. And as you can see, the line starts on the island of Patmos, where John writes these letters and then moves in a clockwise direction from Ephesus to Smyrna and then all the way to the last church in Laodicea. Now remember, these were literal churches that existed in the first century A.D., and these are literal letters that were dictated by Jesus to the pastors of these churches intended to be read out loud to each of these congregations. And as we've identified throughout our study thus far, when we read through these letters to the seven churches, we can draw many spiritual applications for our lives today. Amen? We can draw many spiritual applications based on the truth that Jesus revealed to these specific literal churches, right? But importantly, these churches also form a picture and a representation of the timeline of church history. What do I mean by that? We know now, 2,000 years later, later, as church historians tell us, that there's a pattern to what Jesus has given us in these letters to the seven churches. And as you look at these churches and you look at the description of where they're at and how they're doing and the things that surround them socially, economically, and spiritually, it just so happens that each of these church ages or eras fall into a line or a category of church history. And it's no coincidence. And have a look with me at this next image. So this is the timeline of church history represented by each of these different churches. And let me just refresh your memory with regards to this timeline. You have Ephesus from 33 to 100 AD. And 33 AD was roughly the year that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and when the New Testament church was born. The year 100 AD was about the time when the last of the apostles died, which then ended the apostolic age. Smyrna, which was from 100 AD to 312 AD, started a new time period because after the last of the apostles die, the church goes into a time period where Christians are severely persecuted and martyred for their faith. Yes, persecution already begins in the first century under emperors Domitian and Nero, but it continues for another 200 plus years, and that's why that age of the church is known as the age of persecution. Right? After Smyrna comes Pergamos from 312 to 606 AD, and this was the time period in church history where the Roman emperor Constantine known as Constantine the Great, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And get this, church, it went from being the most persecuted religion to the official religion. Christians finally had a bit of religious freedom, 
But what happened in this period of the church is that the church became married to the government, and so it became politically beneficial to become a church leader. People did it for power and prestige, not for calling and sacrifice. And what resulted was that the church became worldly and compromising, and that's why in your Bible it is called the compromising church. So that's what the imperial age represents. But when you get here to around 606 AD, right, when you get here to around that period which represents the church age of Thyatira, the age of papacy, the title of Pope was given to Boniface III by Roman Emperor Phocas, and what you have from that point onwards is the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church. You have the emergence of a man as head of the church instead of Jesus Christ being head of the church. And as a result, what you have is a number of practices being introduced by these heads that were certain practices that were not found in the Bible, but became traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. You had things, among other, like praying for the dead, the worship of saints and angels, the worship of Mary, seeking absolution and buying indulgences, and priests wearing robes and collars to separate themselves from the congregation. They went back into an Old Testament system of sacrifice and paying for and working for their salvation instead of looking to Jesus Christ for their ultimate salvation right, and their ultimate sacrifice. And as we discover, Jesus doesn't look favorably upon that type of church. That church age carried on for almost 1,000 years, but something very significant happened in 1517 A.D., in 1517, a German Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther takes issue with the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine, and he nails his thesis to the door at Wittenberg Castle, where he lists the 95 problems that he has with their lack of transparency about the Scriptures. The Roman Catholic Church don't like what he's doing, so they send out a public decree to kill him, Right, but the German princes stand up, up in protest for him, thus setting into motion the Protestant, or as we call it, the Protestant Reformation. You and I are here today as a result of these Protestant Reformations and movements, even though some of them are not finishing the way that they started. Now, in 1750, the age of Philadelphia starts a new time period in church history where the first Great Awakening takes place in the British colonies of America. As I've mentioned before, there have basically been four Great Awakenings recorded throughout history with millions of souls being won for Christ. And these Great Awakenings have taken place about every 40 to 50 years, which means that we are due for another Great Awakening. We are due for another revival, Lord willing. Right? But church, that is something that we should really be praying about. That we would witness the Holy Spirit fall in such a way that it would literally impact millions for the sake of the gospel. Amen? And my prayer is that the Lord would allow us to be a part of it. Amen? So that's what happened throughout this church age. But unfortunately, even though you have this age that represents the church at Philadelphia... 
this missional or evangelical church that goes out and spreads the good news of the gospel. This church that Jesus only has good things to say about and that keeps his word and doesn't deny his name. Even though you have this perfect model of a church that Jesus is going to rapture and that will walk together with him in white robes, what you have is an apostate church that emerges in the 1900s. You have a turn to liberal theology, which is where we find ourselves today when we take a look at the church at Laodicea. And before we get into the detail of what all of that means, let's read together from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, and let's see what our Lord says to the lukewarm church. Have you got your Bibles ready? And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful witness, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with our eye salve that you may see." As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, listen to this church, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Powerful, powerful portion of Scripture that. So church, just to make a quick, quick uh, distinction for you here. There's presently within the church age, when I'm talking presently, as of the year 2023, and I'm sure you've noticed this if you have any awareness of how different some churches are, you have two streams of evangelical churches today. You have a stream that is somewhat more conservative and orthodox in doctrine, and you have another stream that is liberal and unorthodox in doctrine and is apostate in nature. Let me explain what I mean. And church, I want to ask you to really dig deep with me this morning, because what we're going to be speaking about is so important for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Right, because we, are, we have access to so many different teachings today, so many different sermons and, and books, right? And we need to understand what it is we should be aligning ourselves with and what it is that we shouldn't. Amen? So the two streams represented by the last two churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea, the church of Philadelphia, as we discovered, is the true church. The other stream, Laodicea, is the apostate church. And what is the distinction between the two? The true church is made up of true believers. The apostate church is made up of pseudo 
or fake believers. The true church will be raptured when the trumpet call of God is sounded before the tribulation, but the apostate church will go through the tribulation. These are going to be the people like, who are like, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? And the Lord is going to be like, depart from me, I never knew you because you're fake believers. You're a Christian in name only, but your practice and your life did not reflect true faith. So when we say apostate, we're talking about the church that is Christian in name only, but not in practice and theology. The word apostasy means a falling away from or an abandoning of the true way. And listen, the Bible predicts it, which means that we need to be aware of it. And you may be thinking and asking yourself, how does this happen? Right? Is this possible? How does the church of Jesus Christ become an apostate church? Let me tell you how. You see, around the turn of the 20th century, certain theologians and pastors started believing that God was narrow-minded. There was this age of enlightenment, and they thought, you know what, we've evolved now. We, we're living in a progressive culture, so we don't have to, to believe in everything that the Bible says. It's, it's become an ancient book. So God has become a bit narrow-minded. Because church, they would read the Bible, and they would say, well, I can't really agree with this, and I can't really agree with that portion of the Bible as if somehow they were more enlightened than God. I mean, think about this for a moment. The cheek to read the Bible and to say, well, that's out of date, right? Or I don't know what God was thinking when he wrote that. And then to say, we're more up to date, we're more current, we're more liberal because we're living in a progressive culture. We're more woke. Because you know what? We understand Scripture better than God does. All I can say to that is, really? Really? And so certain theologians and pastors began to abandon certain doctrines around the turn of the 20th century. They began to abandon doctrines that were perceived as intolerant or out of mainstream society and progressive culture. Basically then allowing the culture to shape the church rather than the church to shape the culture. And allowing the culture to shape the interpretation of Scripture instead of the Bible being inerrant in its totality. And this is what we see happening in our world today, right? But you know what the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And look at what it says in the second part. And do not be conformed to this world, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how do you renew your mind? You get into the Word of God that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the apostate church is not as concerned about the will of God and pleasing God as it is about succumbing to the pressure of the will of man and pleasing man. They are more concerned about pleasing man than they are about pleasing God. And this is what we see happening in our world today when we take a look at the church globally. And let me just take a few moments to, to talk to you about how this all started. Since the early 1900s, the church has been slowly cutting itself away 
from the foundations of sound doctrine and accepting liberal theology that basically denies the inerrancy of God's word. And church, what's the problem with that? Once you start playing with the foundation of faith and practice, which is the word of God, and you deny its inspiration and you deny its inerrancy, everything else begins to unravel. You know, some denominations or some churches are saying, you know what, we believe in Jesus, but we don't necessarily believe in the, the resurrection. Or we believe in God, we believe in the God of the Bible, but we don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. When you start speaking like that and believing in that, everything else is going to start to unravel. This apostate influence that I'm talking about originally came from European liberalism and men like Albert Ritchell and Adolf von Harnack. You can put that next image up for us. They were German theologians that, who believed that the Bible wasn't true in its totality. And because they had great influence throughout Europe as German theologians, they started spreading these false beliefs around Europe. Now, when we look at that church, I don't know about you, but they don't look like very cheerful and happy guys now, do they? You see, this is what happens when you start denying the Bible. You start looking like that, okay? You get very unhappy and old and grumpy. That's what happens, all right? Don't go there. And listen, I'm joking. But the problem with the apostate church is that it looks at Scripture in a way that will make it feel good and justify its own ideals about life. This church looks at Scripture to complement their way of thinking and their behavior but that's not the purpose of Scripture. When you stand before the Bible, you are to stand before it as a mirror, right? And guess what? This mirror will not reflect you and all of your desires and opinions. Let me give you an illustration of, of what I'm talking about. Who knows the story of Snow White and the Seven Doors? Anyone know that story? Any, any five people? Okay, a couple of you. And who can remember the wicked old witch? The wicked old witch stood before the mirror and looked for the mirror to compliment her, right? She said, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? Expecting it to be her, but she was in for a surprise because a picture of Snow White appeared in the mirror. You see, the wicked old witch looked into the mirror for self-gratification, self-recognition, and self-glorification, but she saw somebody else. And here's the point of the story. The purpose of Scripture is to show you the fair one. It is to show you a picture of Jesus Christ. It is not there for you to justify what you believe in and to make yourself feel good or look good. Amen? You know, we can all read the same word, but there's a big difference between being hearers of the word who go to the Scripture for their own purposes and doers of the word who see Christ as their perfect example. It says in James chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But he who looks, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
You see, the difference between the hearers and the doers is not about forgetting what you've read. It's about choosing to, choosing to forget what you've read and act contrary to God's word, to God's perfect law. Matthew Henry, he did a, a commentary on the entire Bible, and he said of this portion of Scripture, this is very good, I want you to hear this. He said, if we hear God's word and look into the gospel mirror, we do this in vain if we go away and forget our spots instead of washing them off and go away and forget our need for spiritual healing instead of attending to it. This is the case with those who do not hear the word as they ought to because true hearers become true doers. Amen? So coming back to European liberalism, you had Albert Ritchell and Adolf von Harnack, and then in 1922 you had a, another man that joined the gang. You had a man by the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick, who in a sermon in the Northern Baptist Convention declared that Christianity didn't need the intolerance of fundamentalists, but rather the tolerance of diverse beliefs practiced by enlightened modernists. That's exactly what he said in this, this convention in 1922. And in a nutshell, basically what he was saying is we can't hold to absolute truth because we are enlightened people now, and now we know more than God. And so we, know, so we can now deny the absolute truth and the authority of Scripture. Among many other things, Harry Emerson Fosdick didn't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was actually the Messiah or that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. I don't know what Bible he was reading. He didn't believe, that the, the wrath, didn't believe in the wrath of God, suggesting that wrath was simply a symbol for the natural consequences of doing wrong. And with wrath removed, it was inevitable that the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ would also be denied, the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection. Before long, Fosdick's Christianity looked nothing like historic Christianity. His teaching was false in many areas, but at the heart of it all was his denial of the inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of the Bible. He elevated, listen to the church, he elevated human reason above the plain words of Scripture, and he made reason the final authority of truth. But you know what the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 7? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and what? Lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own reasoning. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. It says here in verse 7, Be not wise in your, own, in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Right? You can't try and reason the Bible through your own modern or progressive way of thinking. And so that's why today, church, in these liberal churches that are part of this Laodicean stream, and this is important, we have a toleration of sin under the banner of love rather than addressing sin under the banner of truth and grace so that people can experience genuine forgiveness. It's a toleration of sin instead of calling certain behavior sin. In fact, it has even become more than a toleration of sin. It has become a celebration. A celebration under the, 
the banner of love where just love, you know, we just love everybody. Everybody loves. And so you can do whatever you want because God is love and we love you no matter what. No matter what you do. All this kind of stuff, all this kind of nonsense, instead of really presenting sin for what the Bible calls sin, so that people might experience genuine forgiveness as a result of repentance. And church, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, right? Amen? We need to be free. And the only way that you can be free is, and to be free is to own your sin, confess your sin, and be forgiven by God for your sin. And guess what? If nobody's telling you that certain behavior is sin, then you're never going to experience the forgiveness of God. Why? Because you never come to the place where you acknowledge your need for it. If the gospel is just sort of glazed over and these things aren't pointed out, people are never going to come to this place you know, of genuine forgiveness and repentance. And can you see, church, why it is so dangerous to add your own personal subjective lens to God's word? This is a terrible disservice that is happening in many liberal churches today where sin is just tolerated and even celebrated under the banner of love rather than addressed under the banner of truth and grace so that people can experience true forgiveness. You see, this left unchecked church leads to the toleration and celebration of many different things happening in these churches, such as the performing of same-sex marriages, the ordaining of homosexuals in the pastoral ministry, Denying that a baby is really a human life in the womb of its mother. Abdicating our role to be salt and light in the world, in culture, and in politics. And opting for social justice causes to the exclusion of the gospel. You see, there's nothing wrong with certain causes that are just in regard to those who are suffering injustice. But if it's been done to the exclusion of the gospel, that's the fallacy. That's the mistake. Social justice causes and many liberal churches have replaced the gospel. But instead, it needs to be done in partnership. The gospel needs to lead the way and then you can address injustices because you're now leading with the gospel. Amen? Does that make sense? And then, of course, in the liberal Laodicean stream of churches, you have the promoting of a universalist view that all people will eventually go to heaven. And that hell only exists on earth. Now you may laugh at that and think to yourself, surely not. But pastors are teaching this kind of thing and there are many books being written about this kind of stuff. When we hear these things, you know what, we are shocked. But the Bible predicts that this kind of thing is to be expected. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about the last days, he said to them in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, he said, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, The Spirit clearly says that in the latter time, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul also says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. It's exactly what we're talking about. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That's what's happening in the liberal stream of the church today. And as I said earlier, this church goes through the tribulation because they're not the real church. It's a fake church that's Christian in name only, but not in faith and practice. It's the type of church that believes the world has evolved to such a degree that there's no need for an ancient book. Yes, we'll take some of it, but not the parts that don't suit us. It reminds me of a story about an old lumberjack who went down to a... It's not a true story, but let me, let me share it with you anyway. The lumberjack, he goes down to a lumberjack yard looking for a job. And he speaks to the foreman and he says... You know what? I've been a lumberjack for many years. I need a job. I, I love to cut down trees. The foreman looks at him. He says, sorry, sir, you're too old to cut down trees. The old man smiled and said, yes, I'm old, but I've got a lot of experience. The foreman becomes a bit irritated and says to him, listen, I've worked with a lot of lumberjacks. And I'm telling you, you're too old, you're too weak and too feeble to chop down trees. And in any case, the industry has evolved. You know, we've progressed and we have all this new equipment which you would never be able to handle. The old man said to him, let me just cut down one tree and then you can decide whether or not I am fit for this job. So he takes this man down to the, the forest, cuts down one tree, and he cuts it down in, in record speed, in record time. This foreman is shocked and he says to him, where did you learn to chop like that? You're the fastest guy I've ever seen with his axe. The old man says to him, well, have you heard of the Sahara forest? The Sahara forest? Don't you mean the Sahara desert? He says, yes, that's, I guess that's what you call it now. <laughs> and what's the moral of the story? God has been around for a while. He's been chopping down stuff and mowing down stuff with his word for a long time. He has experience beyond measure. So don't you ever think that you can come with your involved or your enlightened or progressive way of thinking and try to prove him wrong or discount his infallible word. Right? He's God and he knows what he's doing. Can I get an amen to that? Now church, in closing... In case you think that it sounds a bit contradicting by me saying earlier that we're ripe and ready for a, another great awakening, and now you've heard me speak about a falling away and an apostasy that happens, I believe that both can happen at the same time. Unfortunately, you're going to have people in the church that think they really are Christians who fall away from the faith. But you're also going to see a great revival of people who aren't even in the church of Jesus Christ who come to faith in the Lord because another sweeping great revival is going to happen in our world. Amen? Amen? And listen, church, I pray that we will be a part of that continual mainline evangelical stream of Christianity that is never ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that believes in the inerrancy of the Word of God, and that continues to teach the truth wrapped in grace with the love of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the only eternal life-changing tool for the human heart, not human reason. And it's the gospel 
is what God uses for His glory. In church, may He continue to glorify Himself through His true and genuine church. And may we continue to guard our hearts no matter what culture does, no matter how culture progresses, no matter what the liberal church does. We need to guard our hearts and minds in order to believe and rely on the infallible and inherent Word of God. Amen. Can we receive that word this morning?